It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman, right? We know that line. And I wanted to start with that video clip because while it's a silly illustration, uh, it helps us to think about the passage that we're going to be looking at today in Scripture. If you've got a Bible, you can open with me to John chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 19. But uh, what's, what, what really captivates me is that section of the opening of the Superman, Adventures of Superman. This, this idea that there's all these people gathered around in the city of Metropolis, and as they look towards the sky, they see something, and we see the first person go, it's a bird. Someone else, no, 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 it, it's a plane. And finally, the, the third gentleman, not Superman. When we, when we hear that, when we see that, it, it's easy to just laugh or to think about it because we've heard it so many times. It's just something simple. But it really illustrates uh, a point that when we don't wonder, when we don't have questions, when we don't stop to think about something critically, we can often end up defaulting to sort of our first assumption. When the people of Metropolis saw something in the sky, it was natural for them to say, it's a bird or it's a plane because, well, that's what flies around in the sky. That's what we anticipate seeing. If it wasn't for the fact that there was that one gentleman who had either seen or heard and perhaps wondered about the person named Superman, they might never have known what really flew by to cause all that chaos and to valiantly save the city somewhere else. This leads me to a question when we think about the person of Jesus, what do we expect? For those of us who are followers of Jesus, do you still wonder about him and what he's capable of, what he can do, what he can mean for your life? Today, of course, in the church calendar is Palm Sunday. This is a traditional Sunday that's set aside to remember a monumentous event that was preceding Easter, which we'll celebrate next week together with a, a good Friday time and experience where we'll walk the Stations of the Cross on Friday from 10 to 1, and then Easter Sunday we'll, we'll celebrate and come together again and, and just be so excited about the resurrection. But even though we have these traditions, even though we have something that we get excited about, I can't help but wonder, do we wonder? Do we stop? Do we think? Do we take time to consider who Jesus is time and time again. That's sort of a theme that I want to pick up on in our passage. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to, I'm going to read from John chapter 12, from verses 12 to 19. We read this. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it was written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that, had seen him perform signs and went out to meet him. 
So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Let's just pray quick. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we read this, uh, a text that for some of us is very familiar, uh, maybe for some of us it's new, but either way, Lord God, will we come to this within a place where we wonder about who you are? And Holy Spirit, would you just speak to our hearts and minds today? Would these words not be, be mine, but would they be yours? Would you just place in each one of us exactly what you want to see in, in who you are? And God, would you be glorified in that? And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So these few verses that I just read uh, take place at a time where there's uh, some bustling in the streets of Jerusalem. But people are preparing for the Passover festival, which is one of the most uh, famous and important celebrations for the Jewish people throughout history. It was a festival that marked an annual reminder of the time that God had saved his people from slavery through the Exodus. By the way, if you're interested in Exodus, we're going to be going through Exodus post-Easter. That's going to be our sermon series, and it's going to be awesome time for us to look at an ancient book in a, in a different way to see what it has to say to us. But that book, that time of life, really marked the Israelite culture. It was something that they would constantly look to time and time again as one of the most significant things that God ever did. When he saved his people from an oppressor, from people who captured them and brought them into slavery. And so it really was a significant event. And, and people would make this huge pilgrimage. People from all over the country would travel and gather in Jerusalem. The city would more than double in size. Things were so crazy that the city walls couldn't contain it. And tens of thousands of people would actually have to circle the city in camps. Tents with people, people gathering in, in, in makeshift huts and booths that were set up for this celebration. People would come all around and they would be partying. They'd be remembering. They'd be celebrating. They'd be gathering with long-lost friends. They would see family members they hadn't seen in a while all coming together to celebrate God and what he'd done in the Exodus. This was a really exciting time. But things got even more exciting when Jesus came into the picture. When Jesus came onto the scene in the story that we're reading about, we see that there was something that was sort of in the air and began to build, and people started to not just celebrate what God had done in the Exodus, but they came to celebrate him. One of Jesus' best friends had recently just died, and then Jesus, a few days later, had shown up and resurrected him from the dead. He brought Lazarus back to life in front of family and friends, but that news didn't just stay there, it quickly spread. People who knew of Lazarus, who knew of Jesus or the family connections, they all gathered and began to ask questions of Jesus and Lazarus. What, what really happened? Surely they would have grabbed Lazarus' sisters and said, did this really happen? People began to, to gather around and, and they started to, to get excited. And what once was sort of this murmur in the background began to really build into a roar. This Jesus is the Messiah. 
The Messiah is the chosen, it's the title for the chosen one of God who is meant to liberate God's people once again. But this way in a new time. Prophets for hundreds of years in the nation of Israel had said, you're going to want to look for him. Because when the Messiah comes, when my chosen one is sent, good things are going to happen. And so while people are already bubbling and buzzing, while the city's kind of in this state of excitement, there he is. The one who raised Lazarus from the dead comes up over the hill, and what happens? People just flood out. This is exciting. And so what do they do? They grab palm branches off the trees and they began to chase them out and they began to wave them saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Others would take off their jackets and and throw them on the pathway in front of him and they would just say, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. That'd be quite a spectacle, wouldn't it? Imagine if we just were to go out these doors and going down McClure or South Fraser Way, all of a sudden there were all these people gathered as someone rode into the city, waving palm branches, making way, sweeping off the street so it would be nice and clean, and they're all cheering. Look, he's here. Well, what is that? What's going on? What's our expectation that that comes to rise? Well, there were actually quite a number of expectations going on in the background. For instance, this cry that they were yelling of Hosanna. Well, Hosanna is an Aramaic phrase which means save us now. Save us now. Here comes the chosen one of God, the one who's come to set God's people free. He's here. Come save us. These are people who are citizens under Roman occupation. Mixed with this, they they, they yell out, Blessed is the king of Israel. God be upon this person who is going to rule and reign above us. The crowds are exciting because this person isn't just going to come in and be a liberator and save them, but he's going to be the one that they put up on the throne of David. This is our next king. This is the one that we want to see rule for a long time because he's been sent by God to us. And all the while, as they yell this, they wave palm branches. Now to us, palm branches seem relatively insignificant. I mean, we don't have a lot of palm trees because we don't live in the climate, but sure, they did. They have a good climate. They grab some palm branches, something big, easy to wave, nice fan, right? Keeps us cool in the Middle East. He, this is great, but it's so much more than that. You see, the palm branch is a symbol of Jewish nationalism. This is a symbol of rebellion for the people of God. What was happening in these people's mind was that a coup was forming, and they were here to celebrate the one who would save them. They're excited because they have something that's stirring in their mind and Jesus is going, here comes Jesus. He's going to flip the tables again. But this time he's not going to yell at us in the temple. He's going to go yell at them, our Roman occupiers. Won't that be so good? Not only is he going to yell at them, but he's going to upset the status quo and we're going to be the top dogs in our country again. Again. 
There's a lot going on here, and we can pick up on one of the clues in verse 19. We see the Pharisees, the religious and social leaders at the time, turn to one another, and they've been having sort of some issues with Jesus for a long time and have some questions of him. And and here we see what they say in regards to all this spectacle. They say, see, this is getting nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The Pharisees in this moment are freaked out. The Pharisees have been uh, placed in this position in society where it's their job to be uh, sort of the social and religious leaders of the people. But, but not only that, the Roman occupiers would have looked at them and really had checks and balances for them. If you want to run this thing you're doing as Jewish people, you need to do it in this sort of framework. Recognize we're your captors and we can come eliminate you all. And so pay attention to what's going on and make sure things stay in line and we'll continue to allow you to worship. We'll continue to allow you to have your celebrations like the one you're in. And so the Pharisees, they have a concern because there's this swelling of idealistic people flooding into the streets, cheering for someone saying, look, he's going to capture and overtake our oppressors. They're waiting for sort of that match to go off in the fireworks factory. They're expecting explosions to take part. And this is all because they know the power of the people and they're questioning the power of him. And the people are really powerful and passionate about this. In fact, if we were to read the Gospel of John just six chapters earlier in John chapter 6, we see that the people have already tried to elevate him. They've already tried to take Jesus and make him king. We read, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, that's that he just fed the 5,000, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. They're starting to allude to him being the Messiah. And so Jesus knew what they were doing. They were going to, they planned to take him by force and make him their king. You're going to serve us. You're going to accomplish what we want. You're going to be the king, whether you like it or not, Jesus. We see the power in you. And as they do this, they're reflecting back on history. And we see this history all throughout the story. You see, 150 years before Jesus, there was a a guy named Judas Maccabeus. Judas Maccabeus was a Jewish revolutionary who had led his people to a victory over a dynasty that had come to oppress them. And as he did that, He led them to win and then threw a big celebration. At that celebration where the Jews were no longer oppressed, he had the people wave palm branches to celebrate what had happened. He would take that dynasty's coins, their money, the representation of who they are and the power, and he would have his people stamp in a palm branch over the ruler's face. The people see Jesus. They're celebrating him. Remember Judas? He was great, but Jesus is even better. Imagine what he can do. And so as they wave their palm branches in the air, they yell, Hosanna, save us again. Seems pretty exciting. We should be passionate about this, except for one thing. It totally misses the mark of understanding him. 
Everything that the Jewish people were celebrating and getting ready for and throwing a party about as Jesus comes into the city doesn't actually align with what he says about him, between what he wants to do and them. We see even Jesus' closest friends don't really know fully what's going on here. As John says, he says, uh, at first, the John, I love this, John is telling the story, he's giving us a little bit of history, but then in the middle of it, he takes a step back just so that we all know what's going on. And he says, at first, his disciples didn't understand all this. John's one of them, right? He's like, we, we didn't get this. We didn't know what was going on. We were excited. We were caught up in the party. We're here to celebrate him. We've just seen him raise our friend from the dead. Things are good. And I said that it wasn't till later that we realized what went on and what was done to him. Now, there should have been loads of signs that this wasn't exactly what they were expecting. There was all sorts of things that had been told about this Messiah who had come. The Jewish people just kind of said, meh. We don't like that part, we'll ignore it. But right here in the text, we see that there's this, uh, uh, this uh, quote that comes from Zechariah chapter 9, which tells us about how Jesus had come to fulfill a promise, and it painted a different picture of who he was. The prophecy told us that the king would come seated on a donkey. If you were to go into war in these times, what would you ride on? A horse, good guess, right? They'd have war horses. A good king who came in for a military victory would be riding the biggest and baddest horse loaded up with armor and weapons and he'd go in to take this city with his men. Jesus is sitting on a donkey, not really threatening, not really exciting, a slow, dumb animal that he sits on rides in, trotting into the city. In those moments, what Jesus was showing and what God had promised was that the Messiah wouldn't be one who would come hell-bent on destruction, ready to rage war, ready to hurt and punish people. No, he would be a gentle king. Not one of militaristic power, but one who would come to extend God's peace to the nations. The whole path that Jesus would take from here over that next week would lead him not to a victory in the death of his enemies, but to victory through the death of him on the cross. He came so that he could die on the cross, so that he could be our substitute in death, so that the victory wouldn't be over the Romans, but it would be over the power of sin and death so that we would be able to be made right with God, to enter into relationship with him through our faith and trust and choosing to follow him. From our passage today, what we read about is the rest of Jesus' story. If we were to continue from this point and move forward, right, we see that whole message be summed up. And John had alluded to it long before again in his gospel. If you actually read the books that were written about the life of Jesus, you'll see that the writers put things in along the way so that we would be able to get it. And right early on, next to the most famous verse in the Bible, John wrote this. He said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He didn't send him there to come and beat up on the Romans, 
as much as they maybe deserved it. He didn't send Jesus to come to slaughter people and bring death. Instead, he came to save people and offer them life in him. He came to bring a gift to every man, woman, and child, a gift of light and life, and to invite them into his presence and to experience the fullness of what it could mean to have life in him. It's what all the writers later will go on to write about in the Bible. They'll tell us what the story, how the story unfolded. They, they, they narrate the history, but they also come to sort of breathe this life into us understanding what could happen with Jesus. But as I read this story once again, I just have to stop and question. Do I approach this in the same way that the Israelites approached him so long ago? Do I look at the person of Jesus with my preconceived notions, focused on the parts I like about him, ignoring the rest, and then I just say, that's him? This is Jesus. He fits neatly in a box that fits with my concept, and I'm happy with that. I mean, I am pretty happy with what my initial reaction to Jesus is. I love Jesus. I'm so thankful that he came to die on the cross. I'm so thankful that he came to pay the price so that I could have eternal life with him. And you know, for most of my life of growing up in the church through, through my, my later childhood years into my teens and into my 20s, I was really content sitting there with that. But I've been challenged. Challenged to not fall into the same trap that the people fell in way back then. To not just put Jesus in a box. To not just be thankful just for that, which is more than enough to be thankful to him for. It's more than enough to worship him for. It's more than enough to give our lives to him for what he did on the cross. But the reality is that there's even more than that. And Jesus wants us to invite him into that. So I ask you today, as you think of Jesus, how do you understand him? How do you understand Jesus? A lot of people think Jesus is a great teacher. He was. We can read about his teaching. It's pretty exciting and revolutionary what he taught, and he did it in a compelling way. And, and I think we, we like to box him in like that because it, it gives us a nice, clear dynamic for him. I've known some great teachers. I had some growing up. I'm thankful for some friends who are teachers, and I'm able to say, hey, Jesus is a good one too. A lot of people like to think of Jesus simply as a moral life lesson. Here's a guy who lived a moral life and he did what was right and he gave us a picture of, of, of how we should live. That's something easy for us to conceptualize. Jesus lived the perfect life. He had the per- perfect morals and ethics and, and we long for a lot of that in our world that's so messed up and people are doing the wrong thing and so we go, hey, I'm happy with that picture of Jesus. It makes sense. But when we belittle Jesus into that point, what are we really doing? We're being the citizens of Metropolis. As they looked up at Superman, they said, well, the thing that flies in the sky is either a bird or a plane, so it must be that. 
In the same way, we look at Jesus and we say, he was a great guy who taught great lessons, so therefore he was moral or he was a great teacher. That's what I understand. But when we do that, we really begin to diminish him and the power of what he has to say. I'm really excited today in a few minutes that we're going to have baptisms. Because baptisms are a great way for us to understand a broader picture of who God is. Seven students are going to get baptized later today. And each and every one of them, though a couple of them are our sibling pairs, has a different story. And if you know these students, you'll know even the siblings are very different from one another. And they've experienced different things and they've walked different lives and they've struggled with different struggles and they've encountered Jesus in different ways. And the incredible thing that happens if we're willing to give our attention is that we can hear how God has struck every one of them. And it can inspire us to wonder. The Apostle John should inspire us to wonder. This man who said, we didn't even see it as we walked into the city, but let me let you know, you wouldn't believe it, what he would do. He would go to the cross. He would die and he would rise again. He would ascend to his Father in heaven. He would give every one of us the Holy Spirit so that we could live with him, so that we could empower, be empowered by him, so that we could experience even the great things that he did where he performed these incredible miracles, we would experience even more in him, Jesus said. So today I ask you, no matter where you are in sort of your ebb and flow cycle of wondering about Jesus, and we all do it, right? There's times where we wonder about Jesus, where we're drawn to him, and there's times where we're just checked out. Wherever you are in that, I would encourage you to consider wondering about him. Just ask yourself the question today, what really, could Jesus, what really could I see that's different in Jesus today that I've never seen before? What do I expect of Jesus, but what does Jesus really hold as an offer? If we ever get to a place where we're complacent in our wonder of Jesus, you're heading to a place of spiritual death. You're heading to a place where your faith's just going to die, you're just going to get bored, and you're going to want to move on. And when the doubts begin to creep in, because you haven't understood the richness of him, your faith's going to slide. That's true. That's the experience of so many people. But the good news is that's not the way it has to be. There's an invitation in it. Jesus says, I long for you to come to me and know me so that I might reveal to you who I am through my Holy Spirit, time and time again. And let's move to a place, if you haven't yet received him, to experience the fact that someone would be willing to die for you. Wonder about that. Like, what would compel someone so much to die for you? I know when I ask that question, for me, it has a lot of questions because I don't know who would possibly want to do something like that. Ask yourself if Jesus had the power to save me then. Could he actually have the power to remove that sin from my life altogether? If you're like me, there's those patterns of sin that time, come up time and time again, and Jesus says, I want to free you from that. 
So often we just end the Christian life at this place where we ask for forgiveness time and time again. Jesus, forgive me, I did it again. Jesus, forgive me, I did it again. Jesus, please forgive me, I did it again. And we never stop to say, Jesus, help me get rid of this sin. Jesus, help me to overcome this thing that has a grip on me. And the incredible thing, and I've experienced this, is that Jesus can actually give you the freedom to move past that thing, to experience freedom from its power over your life if we would only stop to wonder and then invite him in. Doesn't mean it's going to be instant, doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but Jesus invites us in. For most of the time that I've followed Jesus, as I said, I've stopped at this place where I've just been appreciative of what salvation meant. But as I have come to start to wonder about the power of the cross and what Jesus has done on it, I've learned to unload my burdens and my pains on him. I've learned to forgive people who in my own power I could never forgive. I've learned to take things that just come up as sin patterns in my life time and time again and see myself released from them. I've learned to see my prayer life as not just an opportunity to have a grocery shopping list for him or to ask for forgiveness of sin, but as a place to meet with the creator and sustainer of the universe and to be filled and met in my deepest longings and loneliness by the beautiful face of Jesus. So today I ask you to consider wondering. Wonder, what if the promises given in Scripture aren't just poems, but they're actually invitations of something to receive in my life? Wonder that if maybe there's something more as I dive into him, as I try to plumb his depths, that I'll actually experience more grace and kindness and love and hope and peace and joy and selflessness. Maybe what if when Jesus said, come to me when you're tired and I'll give you rest, that you actually found it in him. So for the next couple of moments, I just want to invite you in. Wherever you are, just take a moment and just pray to him. Say, God, this is what I expect of you. This is what I know about you. Show me what's next. So let's take time to pray that wherever we are, and then I'll pray as we move on in worship. God, you are incredible. I am, Jesus, I just thank you so much for revealing who you are. Holy Spirit, I thank you for how you've drawn near. Heavenly Father, I thank you for how you've re revealed yourself to us in your word. God, I thank you that, that just the more I get to know you, the more I just get to experience how incredible you are. Lord, it's enough that you went to the cross. It's far beyond anything that I deserve or I can understand. But wow, thank you that there's so much more to you. God, I thank you that you give us that promise that, 
that as we live in you, you live in us so that we can live in you even more. And God, I pray that as we wonder on what that could mean, as we wonder on the mystery of, of the depths of who you are and what you can mean for our, every part of our being, God, I just pray that, that, that we would be open to seeing more of who you are. That we would be open to experience the, the fullness and the goodness of, of the truth that, that not only do we have a relationship with you one day when we die, if we have faith, but that we have a relationship with you every day and that we can be empowered in our everyday lives in you. So Jesus, I thank you so much for who you are. I pray for everyone here today that, Lord God, as they open their eyes and wonder to see who you are, as they open up their heart to, to experience more of you, Lord God, that you would breathe into them a new hope, a new life, a new dimension of who you are. And then, God, as we worship you through song and then as we celebrate who you are through baptisms, God, I just pray that we would see you fresh again. And that we would be able to celebrate what you've done in the story of these seven students. And Lord God, in that, we thank you. We thank you for how you've brought us together as a church family. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.